Hi. Well, it's it's been a week. <laughs> Uh, lots going on, lots happening. And uh, for those of you who have been tracking with us over these last couple of months, we've been doing a series called Life Together, where we have been reading through the book of Philippians. And just in conversations that have been kind of erupting within our community as we watch what's going on in the world right now, both uh, in the United States, but all over the place as a response to uh, not simply the death, the murder of George Floyd, but, uh, but the incredible uh, systemic injustice that we are becoming more and more aware of that is faced by the black community, by the indigenous community, and by people of color. And uh, just a real sense on my heart and on the heart of the leadership team that this is something that is important for us to talk about as a community. And so we're going to return to Philippians, uh, but uh, this week we're going to take some time to just kind of unpack our response as a church. What does this mean for us? And what are we listening to and discerning God doing and calling us to do and be as a community in this specific moment at this specific junction in time? And uh, I just want to say this, this is a challenging time because we're processing big, significant things, and yet we are in this age of social distancing. We are in home quarantine. And so as we're processing this, a lot of us, we are watching TV, we're watching the news, we're, we're reading things, we're on social media, but we are not being able to engage in real communal life and a shared life together and to really be able to talk about this. And so, uh, so this is part of one of the things that we want to address and be able to work through this morning and in the coming weeks. Um, but I do want to say this. I, I've been kind of hearing some response back, and, and it's been predominantly from younger people within our community, uh, people in their, their teenagers, our young adults, uh, who are angry right now. They are angry that they watch this video and they see that this kind of thing not simply happened, but has been happening. And they're angry because they realize that had this not been caught on video, this would have just been another event and would have been swept under the rug and we would never even hear about it. Uh, and I want to say this for you, if you're a young person who's angry or if you're just anyone who watches that video or is reading things and you're just going, this is wrong. I simply want to say this to you. I want to say God is angry too. The God that we worship, that we gather together as a church to serve, the, the God who shapes our life, our shared life together, is a God who is infuriated by injustice, by racism, and white supremacy. And you need to know that. And our, our, this moment, I am, I am excited to receive those emails because as I read them, and I'm excited to have those conversations, because as I hear the anger and the energy, um, I, I really believe that is the work of the Holy Spirit, uh, making our hearts in tune with the heart of our Father. And so this morning, I want to talk about what is Forest View as a church? What is our response going to be? But I want to begin with a little bit of a disclaimer. Uh, we are a, first off, I am obviously a white man. And we do not need more white men chiming in with their opinions about racism and white supremacy at this particular moment in time. Uh, however, as the lead pastor of this church, uh, I feel that it is, uh, it is something I have to do and I have to speak to. Uh, and so first off, I want to simply say that being fully aware of who I am, the, my blind spots, the, the lack of awareness that I have. Uh, and so I hope that the posture of this sermon is one of humility. Uh, and the second thing that I think is really key and is important 
to address is just we, um, while we are a community that is growing in diversity, it's beautiful to see all of the different races that are represented here. We are still a majority white church. And so for uh, the black people in our community, to the people of color in our community, to the indigenous people in our community, uh, I want to say, uh, please listen to this. Please give feedback. Um, this, is, this is not meant to be directed at you. Uh, this is speaking to our majority white congregation. And, um, and my hope is, is that you hear this and you give us feedback if you are willing, if you have the energy to do that, uh, so we can begin to move forward as a community and be faithful to what we believe it means, what we are discerning God calling us, who we are call discerning God to call us to be as a community. Uh, if you were to go through and read through our Forest View 360 statement, essentially it's who are we? It's like kind of the core, that's the guts of who we are and who we long and desire to be. I, I remember hearing a presentation of this. It was one of the first things I listened to before I applied for the job here at Forest View. And, uh, and it was an amazing thing to hear. And I think it's just an amazing document. And, and this morning, I want to grab a few things out of that uh, and then just kind of preface our, the talk with that, some information about that. And so, um, and then I think that it's going to be sort of unpacked as we continue to read through this. And uh, it, within the document, it was sent out in an email. If you didn't receive it, um, it's available on our website. I encourage you to go and to check that out, Forest View 360. And it gives you a better idea about who we are as a community. What do we believe God has called us to do and be at this particular time and place in this world. Um, and uh, so uh, the, the first part is, uh, is, is talking about why we exist. There's a bunch of different elements to it. Um, but then there's a section called, how do we proceed? So essentially we sense God calls us to be this. What does that look like as we live it out? And so the first thing that we, that is identified in that how we proceed section is amplify the prophetic voice. Micah 6, 8, who's a prophet, he writes this, he has shown you, O mortal, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Now, often when we hear the word prophet or prophecy, we think about people who can predict the future. But when we read through the Bible, uh, we actually discover that it's a much richer and there's so much more going on there when we say and we use the term prophecy or prophetic. And so this morning I want to unpack that uh, and I want to look at a few other things as we talk about it. But here's sort of the breakdown of ways that we want to amplify the prophetic voice. And I'm going to explain what that means a little bit later. But here are the four things. First, uh, the first one is speaking truth and hope. Ephesians 4.15 says this, instead of speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head that is Christ. As Christians, we are called to both listen to the truth and also to speak it, which I believe is actually a, a radical countercultural thing that we experience in our world when we think how easy it is to simply embrace lies and to simply go along with lies or not speak up in the face of lies. And so there's a radical calling on the church. Second one is amplify the prophetic voice. Number two, listen to the spirit at work. We're going to unpack that a little bit later. The next one uh, in amplifying the prophetic voice is to confront the illusions and lies of culture. This ties in with that idea of speaking the truth. And finally, in number four, in amplifying the prophetic voice, confess that the culture has shaped us. And a quote that has been significant in terms of communicating this is from an Old Testament professor named Walter Brueggemann, who's just, his writings on the prophets and the prophetic voice are so significant. I love how he frames it this way. He says, the prophetic task of the church are to tell the truth in a society that lives in illusion, 
grieve in a society that practices denial, and express hope in a society that lives in despair. I mean, how true is that even in this specific moment in time as we see, uh, as the, the incredible systemic injustice that we see at work in our world, we're seeing that being kind of revealed for what it is and how, and then there's this desire to tell the truth to a society that lives in, in uh, illusion, grieve in a society that practices denial, and to express hope in a society that lives in despair. And so this morning, um, I want to talk about the reality of sin, but, but even more so, I want to talk about the immensity, this big, massive thing that we as Christians call the gospel, and the depth and width and the beauty of it. And I want to talk about the prophetic voice and what it means to amplify it. Uh, and so in order to do that, I need to talk about Adam and Eve. I need to talk about Cain and Abel. And I need to talk about my first computer. Um, so if you've got a Bible, you can, we're going to kind of be doing a bit of a survey as we walk through this. So if you're to go through and start at the beginning of Genesis, Genesis chapter 1, the beginning of the Bible, it begins to tell this story about a loving God who creates everything. And he creates humanity, Adam and Eve. He creates them and he says the creation is good. And he gives them this task to care for and to look after creation. And so there's just this beautiful, beautiful, intimate relationship. There's no shame. There's no guilt. There's no using other people or, or manipulating other people. It's just shared life and love. And it's beautiful and it's incredible. Uh, but then there's a story uh, about Adam and Eve choosing to go their own direction. And now whether you believe that this is a historical story or for you this is a symbolic allegorical story, either way, ultimately what it drives is that what goes on in the heart of every single human being is that we are faced with this choice in our lives to consistently, are, we are driven away, pulled away from going, we're going to allow God to tell us the way to live and instead we're going to choose to go our own way. At the root of sin is the approach to life that we can know good from evil outside of a relationship with God. And as Adam and Eve, they choose to eat from this tree called the knowledge of good and evil, suddenly sin enters into their lives, into the world, and it fractures and it breaks their relationship with God. Suddenly they're overwhelmed with shame, this need to hide. Suddenly there's animosity between themselves, between one another, and, and even more so between the creation around them. Now, interesting thing that happens in this story, Adam and Eve, they go, they leave the Garden of Eden, they leave this blissful, incredible place of love and unity and intimacy, and they enter out into the, what they call the wilderness, the place where they were never intended to be. And we see that they have children. They have a son named, two sons, Cain and Abel. And ultimately, we don't know what was going on, but there was tension happening. And, and Abel, he brings a sacrifice to God and God loves it. And, he, and Cain brings a sacrifice to God and God is not pleased with it. And for whatever reasons, it were unclear whether it was jealousy or whether it was just annoyance, Cain chooses to murder his brother. And so what we see is this, this fracturing of relationship in Adam and Eve between God, between each other, between creation, and, and it begins to spread. Sin spreads it begins to infect all their relationships. It begins to get lived out in their interactions and their relationships with each other. Sin spreads. 
And university, I remember going away to university and I got to get a computer, my own personal computer. This was really exciting. It was a big desktop computer. It weighed a ton, uh, and, uh, but I loved it. It was amazing to be able to have that. And so for the first three years of my undergrad program, it worked great. I had a free trial version or a, a version of Norton antivirus, and there's like three years on it. But I remember in my fourth year, that anti-Norton antivirus program, it, it expired. And I figured, I don't think this is going to be an issue. I can't see how this is going to mess anything up. And I remember after about a couple of weeks, maybe a month or so, I remember looking at this black square starting to appear when I would open up certain programs. And I was like, this is kind of weird and strange. It was actually just one program at the start. Uh, and then it started to show up in other programs that it would open up. And more and more and more programs. And I started to realize, oh, wait a minute, this, this was some sort of virus and it was spreading around my computer. Sin is the same way. I mean, what starts off as an individual thing, a thing in the heart, it begins to spread and move and kind of get everywhere. And so uh, when we talk about sin, we're not simply talking about like just a matter of the heart, although it certainly is. We are talking about something that spreads and infects everything. Now fast forward to the book of Exodus. And uh, just to go give you a bit of context for where this story begins, it begins with uh, the Egypt, the city of Egypt, or the, the country of Egypt, which is this powerful force in the world, in large part because um, God raised up a man named Joseph who was uh, able to interpret dreams and, and became aware that there was a famine coming. And so what they started to do was to stockpile the crops, stockpile food. And they were able to be this incredible place that was able to, to share this food with the rest of the world and help the rest of the region survive this famine. Now, a few interesting things start to happen out of this is that they become the only place with food, and so people have to go to them to get that food. And then that food becomes, uh, becomes very precious. And in order to get that food, they have to give something in return. So many people start to go into debt to the country of Egypt as they turn over their land, their property, their money. Uh, in or and then they turn themselves over ultimately into slaves to serve Egypt in order to survive. And Egypt is really good at harvesting and getting all these crops. And so we hear, like it talks about them building cities to store all of the extra crops. Now, in order to look after all of the surplus, they need to have all sorts of workers. And so they start to take these people and get them to build cities for them, building bricks, building the materials. And so what we see, which started off as a really good thing about making sure that everyone was going to have enough, suddenly becomes this way of controlling people. It suddenly becomes a way of enslaving people. And as we start the book of Exodus, we discover that Israel, the people of God, they are slaves in Egypt. They are being mistreated. They are being, being considered less than human. And their entire role and purpose, their existence, is ultimately to continue to contribute to this destructive system. This sin has spread and it's infected the social structures in the world they find themselves in. And you can imagine this, right? A child going to, a Jewish Israelite child going to ask their dad, hey, why do we have to build all these bricks? And it's like, well, they have these cities and there's lots of crops and we are enslaved to them. And so we need to do our job to make sure we are providing for them. And if we don't do it, we'll get whipped. And you go, well, why, why are they whipping us for that? And it says, well, I guess that boss, if he didn't whip us to make sure we were providing this bricks, his boss would whip him. And so there's this vicious system of sin and injustice. And so you can imagine the child continuing to ask, why, why, why? And ultimately the answer is, you can imagine just getting to this place of, well, this is just the way 
that it is. This is just how it is. And you can imagine when you find yourself, or actually when I'd say this, is that you know that you are dealing with systemic sin. Sin that is ingrained itself in the structures of our shared life together. When you find yourself saying things like, uh, I guess this is just the way it is. This is the way it has to be. Um, we ask these questions about ourselves, or we, these questions come up often, you know, when we think about the, our, the fabrics or, or the people who are making our clothing. Where's that coming from? Uh, and chances are those workers in many stores, many industries, they're not being paid well. We know about uh, the coffee or the chocolate that we buy, and it comes from these, uh, there's different situations where you look at it and you go, that's not right. Um, and yet you go, wow, that's just the way it is. Well, the amazing thing is that God sees this system of oppression and injustice, and he speaks into it, and he says, I hear the cry of the people who are hurting and being oppressed, and I'm going to lead them out. And yet at the same time, we see Israel rises to power, this place of affluence and domination, uh, or sorry, this rise to power, and it becomes this nation of affluence and domination, and they begin to start to live out those exact same cycles that we see in Egypt, where they begin to neglect the poor, the powerless, the, the vulnerable, where they begin to take people's lands and enslave them to massive burdens of debt that they can never repay. And you can imagine for many of the people in this situation, they're like, the system works for us. And I think that's true in our world too, as we think about the systemic injustice all over the world, is that for some of us, many of us, especially white people in North America, we live with this ignorance about the way in which our lives impact other people, or the, maybe we call it just white privilege. The things that, we, that are happening, maybe we don't choose to have them happen, but we are a part of systems and structures where we just push out the voices for whom the system doesn't work. Because when it works for us, well, what does it matter? And so God begins to raise up these things we people we call prophets. And they are voices that speak truth to the people of God about the sin that they have become blind to or that they have justified in their own minds. And so these are voices of judgment. They are voices that say, this is wrong. It is not okay. This is not the way the world is supposed to be. And at the same time, they have these voices, they are these moments where they proclaim this incredible hope that God has not given up. And they say, another world is possible. And the prophetic voice, it almost always comes from the margins. It comes from the people who are off to the side. They are the people who refuse to participate and prosper from systems of injustice. And while you might think that, and, they, and essentially they're proclaiming this message to the people saying, you might think that this is working because maybe at least on some level, it, it is working for you. It's keeping you safe, your family safe. It's keeping you well-fed. You are profiting. You are making financial gain from this. But you need to realize this, that this system of sin ultimately leads to death. The, the prophetic voice, it calls out systemic sin. It calls out the people of God and says, this is wrong. This is not how things are supposed to be and that another world is possible. And now we get to Jesus. And the amazing thing about Jesus is that we, a lot of the time we kind of ignore this and we, we focus on Jesus's divinity, which is amazing and beautiful and true. But, but one of the things that we need to remember is that Jesus was also a prophet. 
Uh, he was often talked of, referred to in that, and he shares so much from the Israelite prophetic tradition. He is constantly quoting the great prophets like Isaiah. And, and so uh, he is proclaiming this message of this other world is here. This is not just simply a message about your heart. It is about a whole bigger message about the reign of God in this world. Uh, he talks about the kingdom of God. He, he, this is what he calls the gospel. Mark 1 verses 14 and 15. And this is Jesus speaking. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. He says this, the time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. And so for him, for Jesus, he is saying, yes, I've come to confront personal, individual sin, the sin in your heart, but I've also come to confront the sin that has gotten ingrained in the structures of this world. I love in Luke, Jesus gives his first sermon. He goes to the synagogue and he unrolls the scroll and he finds this passage in Isaiah. And here's what he reads. It says, Luke, starting at verse 18, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of the sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the favor of the Lord. And then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Uh, another way we could translate that is mic drop. Right. Look at the things that he proclaims. Pro freedom for the prisoner, recovery of the sight for the blind, uh, setting free the oppressed, and proclaiming the favor of the Lord. Jesus is speaking into this and saying, yes, judgment is real. Sin is destructive and it leads to death. And yet he proclaims this message, another world is possible. And maybe even more significantly, another world is here in me, present in me. Uh, there is a uh, biblical scholar, and he was the president of Fuller's Evangelical uh, Seminary in the United States for a number of years. His name is Richard J. Mao. And I love one of the ways that he communicates. He talks about the gospel. And sometimes what you'll hear when you hear the gospel talked about is one is like the gospel is, um, is about a prayer of confession to faith. It's about Jesus asking Jesus into your heart. And yes, it absolutely is that. It's personal. It's about God coming in and changing your life and setting you free. But at the same time, it is also about what does that freedom look like as we work it out as a community and as a people. It's about the, not just individual life change, but corporate life change, because just as sin spreads, the good news of Jesus, the reign of God in our hearts as individuals, it spreads, and it needs to impact and touch every aspect of our lives. I love it. Richard J. Mao. He talks about his experience as a, as a teenager going to a Billy Graham crusade and praying this prayer to invite Christ into his life, and it's this beautiful, incredible moment. And then he also talks about this experience where he heard Martin Luther King Jr.'s speech, I have a dream for the first time. And it awakened him to this other richness of the gospel that yes, the gospel is this beautiful truth about my relationship with God, but it's also about this beautiful truth about our shared life together, about the way our lives intersect and interact with each other, the way that our choices and decisions impact other people. And it's about Jesus setting everybody free. 
Uh, I love this. I just, I'm going to skip over a couple of the quotes. I just want to simply read this. This is from Richard, Richard J. Mouse. Only one evangel, only one gospel essentially says this. To be fully saved is to be incorporated into a community of disciples who do their Lord's bidding. A Lord who cares deeply about the corporate dimensions of human existence. And so for us as a church, we are committed we are committed that we are going to always proclaim the good news of personal salvation, the invitation to turn your life over in faith to Christ and allow him to come in and transform your life, that, that there is forgiveness and salvation in Jesus Christ and only in him. And at the same time, we are always going to proclaim that it doesn't stop with you, but that it keeps working and it needs to be outworked. If your gospel is just about your relationship with Jesus. It's not Jesus's gospel. All right, so transition. What does this mean for us? Well, sin is personal, it's individual, but it is also corporate. It is also systemic. And when we talk about racism, we are talking about a personal individual sin, but we are also talking about a corporate systemic sin. Uh, I even heard certain conversations these past few weeks specifically with, related to George Floyd's death. And they say things like, well, this is, this is just a, you know, the, the heart of these officers who, who committed this murder. And while I, I have no idea where the heart of those officers was, uh, I, I would simply respond with this, is that, that, that George Floyd did not die and the many other men and women from the black community, from the indigenous community, and people of color who, who have died at the hands of police, it is not simply a matter of a couple bad apples. Rather, it wasn't just simply a knee on the back of George Floyd's neck that killed him, but rather systems of injustice, systemic sin, systemic white supremacy that has become ingrained and enmeshed in our culture. And that's a scary thing because I can speak for myself and I can speak for many other white people. We are blind to that. Uh, we have no idea that it's there. Uh, a few frightening statistics that I think are important for us to look at. And I know kind of the old expression, there are lies, there are big lies and there are statistics. Uh, and you can twist them around to say whatever you want to say. I'm not smart enough to be able to do that with statistics, but I think these are important for us to look at and take seriously as a community. Uh, the first one is uh, um, that black people in Canada make up three to 3.5% of the general population. Um, and they also make up eight to 10% of the prison population. Indigenous people in Canada make up roughly 3% of the general population and over 30% of the prison population. Okay? These, are, these are important things that we need to take seriously. A uh, specific study that was done in Saskatchewan, they found that Indigenous people are 11.7% of the population in Saskatchewan. And yet, if you were to look at all the deaths that result from police violence, 62.5% of those deaths are Indigenous people. Uh, this is a, a study done in specifically focusing on Toronto. Black people make up 8.3% of the population in Toronto, uh, but 37% of the people who have been killed by police. And black residents in Toronto are 20 times more likely to be killed by police than white 
residents. Uh, there's a professor at U of T, uh, and he simply says this. He says, this, that's a problem that the police themselves cannot solve. It's a problem for policymakers and our society to acknowledge that issues of poverty and disenfranchisement result in exposure to these types of practices. Now, if you go on, I'm sure you've seen it on Facebook or any kind of social media, and there's always the voices chiming in, usually they're white, saying, well, what about or this, this, this. I mean, some of them point out things like, well, the, the black people or indigenous people are, are uh, percentage-wise are more likely to be involved in violent crime. To, to which we as a church, and we should be thinking, okay, well, why is that? That doesn't answer the question. That just pushes the question back to a bigger question we need to ask. And it forces us to ask questions about socioeconomics, it forces us to ask questions about poverty and, and, and opportunity that is afforded to or not afforded to various communities in our country, in our city. And so we need to take that seriously. But moving forward, we realize that <laughs> A lot of harm has been done in the world by white people charging in and thinking they have all the solutions. Because the reality is, is many of us are just waking up to this and we have no idea how implicit we might be in it or just how complex things are. But for us as a church, we refuse to let that move us to indifference. And so in this season, the starting place for our response is we want to take these next couple weeks and maybe months and maybe year even to take, create a space for us to listen and to learn. We want to be very intentional about creating opportunities within our church for black people, indigenous people, and people of color to be able to share their stories to share their perspectives. And we realize that, that those perspectives are diverse. Uh, and so we want to share all of them. We want to learn. Uh, we don't want to try and tell you what you're supposed to think. We want it to be listening and discerning. And so if you are not exhausted and tired, if you have the energy, we want to hear your story. We want to create space to learn and hear and discern from you because we discover a God who is constantly always working in the communities at the margins. To, to the people who have maybe suffered incredible injustice. And so we want to listen to that voice. The second thing we want to make sure we're doing kind of as, a, as an extension of that is, is to continue to learn together. And so we're, throughout the summer, uh, we're hoping to start putting in place book studies. Uh, and so we can go and we can learn and we can grow together. And we're going to be figuring out how to do that, how we do that in a safe way, whether it can be in person, whether it's going to be through Zoom. But, but we want to be intentional about listening to voices on the margins to listening to those within our community who offer a totally different perspective because we believe that in doing so as we create the space for that or as that space is made available, that, that we create space to listen to the voice of God. And finally, we wanted to say this. That this is, we want to approach this as a marathon, not a sprint. We know this has gotten tons of energy and excitement and rightfully so. And people are fired up right now and we, we're, we're really, really encouraged by that. I'm really encouraged by that. But we want to take it seriously and realize that we realize the media is fickle and will move on quick to whatever is next for them. And so we want to walk through this 
We want to partner with, come alongside. We want to be allies. Uh, I want to leave it off with this quote from Courtney Ariel in her report for our white friends desiring to be allies, which she wrote in Sojourner's magazine. This is what she says. Sometimes living with privilege can disillusion us into thinking that being in community with other humans doesn't require work. This is a lie. It requires a great deal of work. And all of that work requires being a human and trying to love other humans well. We know that we have not always loved one another well. We have lived with indifference. We've turned a blind eye to things that are wrong. And we've allowed lies within our culture to creep in to our church. And sometimes we've believed them, gone along with them, and sometimes we've even promoted them. but we are willing to put in the hard work, or at least we want to want to put in the hard work. Because when the church is obedient to the call of Jesus, when we are able to fully embrace the unity that comes even in the midst of racial diversity, the church can become something so incredibly beautiful and a powerful testament in our world to the reign of God. Because another world is possible. I want to transition to communion. And uh, there's a passage that is really interesting to me. And uh, I want to I wrap it up quick because I know I've gone way over. Um, but this is important and I'm not going to rush through it. Um, Essentially, we learned about communion, at least in the letters of Paul, because a bunch of the first Christians in a city called Corinth, the Corinthian Christians, they were doing it all wrong. Um, let me read this to you. This is from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting at verse 17. This is Paul speaking to the first Corinthian church. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have been differences among you to show which of you, God's, which of you have God's approval. So then when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. He says this, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Essentially, what was going on there is there was wealthy people within the church and there was poor people within the church and they would gather together to share the Lord's Supper. But, but what was happening is you had wealthy people who would go and they'd go and then kind of have this party and they'd drink all the wine and they'd be drunk. And the other people who were poor, they would get there later because they were working longer days and they would show up and there wasn't anything there for them. And Paul says, these divisions will not cut it. It's wrong and it's not okay. Because, because the Lord's Supper, because the, the communion, 
is about the reign of God. It's about proclaiming who Christ is, his life, his death, his resurrection. And it's about proclaiming the fact that he is going to return and what that reign, that kingdom is going to look like. And if there is division, there is someone who doesn't get enough. There is someone who's showing up hungry. You are doing it wrong because in God's house, in God's family, there is a place for everyone. And so as we eat today, and as we drink communion today, let us remember that we do not do it alone. And I don't simply mean that as we do it as a church, but we do it as a, a church all over the world and fully acknowledging that they are our brothers and sisters in Christ who are suffering. And for us as Christians, we need to mourn that. And, and we need to listen to their voice. And we need to speak up in the ways that we can. Because as we do that, as we model a community that shares and is generous with each other, we, we proclaim to the world that Jesus is alive, that, that sin doesn't get the last word. And when we do that, we, we proclaim that Christ will come again and that this sin at every level will be driven out and things will be made as they are to be, both in our individual hearts and in our world. Let's pray, and then we will take and eat together. Heavenly Father, you proclaim, blessed are those who mourn, and blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. As we take part in this meal together, a meal that in some ways satisfies our hunger and our thirst to be made righteous, to have lives that are changed and transformed. Would that also place within us a hunger and a thirst to see your righteous kingdom reign in this world? Heavenly Father, we pray that you would move us from indifference to compassion, that you would move us from fear to courage. And Heavenly Father, we thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you for dying for our sins, that we might experience the new life that comes through Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Would you take, eat, and drink the body and blood of Christ given and poured out for you. Let's eat and drink together.